Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. A little bit of follow-up from last week's episode on Simon Winchester's book, The Perfectionists. Uh, We certainly got a lot of great feedback from various people after our discussion of the book, including from Mr. Winchester himself. He retweeted our episode and he listened to it and seemed to enjoy it. That was uh, it was nice to nice to get a little bit of feedback from the author himself, but and uh, from everyone else as well. We had had a lot of great feedback on that, and a uh, few people who've either read the book or who uh, are now interested in reading the book because of it. So, I hope uh, hope you guys enjoy it. In that vein, if you do happen to enjoy that book, uh, a few other books that I'd recommend reading are from Ross King. He's he's written a few books dealing with historical figures and historical times. And he tends to focus more on a specific person uh, versus something like what Simon did with this, um, with the the perfectionist where he's dealing with, you know, sort of snippets of, of different things over, over a period of time. Uh, The two that I'd recommend from Ross King are Brunelleschi's dome and the Pope's ceiling. Uh, so the first one is dealing with the construction of the dome over the cathedral in Florence. At the time that it was being built, nobody knew how to build the dome. In fact, the architect who designed the original cathedral designed it knowing that he had no idea how to build the dome and that it, he didn't think it could be built. Uh, but he also knew that he was going to be dead before that problem arose. Uh, so he designed it anyways and uh, and left it for somebody else's problem. And uh, eventually, uh, Brunelleschi comes along, and uh, he understood how to build the dome. Uh, so this book deals with the story of how he eventually was able to get the commission to do it. Deals with some of the politics and infighting of being an artist in fifteenth uh, century Florence, I guess sixteenth century Florence. Certainly a nasty place to be a, an artist, but also quite a prosperous time to be an artist as well. Uh, the Medici at the time were spending obscene amounts of money on art and science, and uh, and so if you were a, a talented artist at the time, you could um, you could rely on them to be uh, to be a patron for you. Uh, so, anyways, it's it's a fabulous book. Um, the dome itself is a remarkable piece of engineering. In fact, until the early '80s, when the Superdome was built in Texas it remained the largest unsupported dome in the world. Uh, so it, it's a, a remarkable feat of engineering, even by modern standards. Uh, there are not a lot of domes out there that are the same, uh, you know, that are larger, that uh, that are unsupported. So that's a fascinating book. And then the other one, The Pope's Ceiling, deals with Michelangelo's painting of the Sistine Chapel. And because of the Sistine Chapel, we we primarily know Michelangelo as a painter. But he considered himself to be a sculptor and that was what he that's what he cared about that's what his passion was and that's what he wanted to do and this story talks about how pope sixtus was able to convince michelangelo to paint the the walls of the or sorry the ceiling of the sistine chapel and the the trials and tribulations of that and then uh, also how he ended up coming back to paint the altar wall many many years later uh, in fact i think there was 40 or 50 years between when he painted the ceiling and when he painted the altar wall. 
and uh, what was involved in trying to get him back to do that because he was not a big fan of, of finishing that project. And I think his self-portrait that he hid in that altar wall is uh, quite a testament to how he felt about that. That altar wall is brilliant. There's some great stories in there. I think one of my favorites is about a uh, a cardinal who um, he believed that the you know the the paintings that that Michelangelo was doing were were disgusting and and immoral uh, and obscene and he he would go in and he would berate Michelangelo constantly while he was working and and he would attack him and he would um you know he he was he was basically a horrible person he was he was the uh renaissance version of a of a twitter troll Michelangelo finally got sick and tired of it and so he uh the painting is the descent into hell so you've got people descending into hell and the and the various uh, trials and everything like that that are uh, that they're dealing with and the the horrible things that they have to have to put up with and um, he painted just above the there's a little door on the altar wall and in fact nowadays that's where you come into the Sistine Chapel is through this little door and above that door there's um, a man who's naked and there's a snake eating his genitals. And that man is this particular cardinal. And so he painted him into the wall, you know, as a sinner descending into hell. Of course, the cardinal complained to the Pope about this. And uh, the Pope just looked at him and he's like, look, you know, you've been attacking this guy constantly. You've been, um, you know, you've been a horrible person to this guy. He he didn't blame him for for painting him in there. All sorts of wonderful little stories about that, uh, the, those paintings, all of them, and the the, the trials and tribulations of dealing with the uh, the papacy as your patron. So, anyways, both are excellent books. Highly recommend reading them. Uh, they've been out for a little while. I think the Pope's Ceiling was published two thousand sometime around that. Uh, he's done other books about various other artists. Um, he's done one about the Impressionists. He's done uh, one about uh, Machiavelli. So, if you're if you're interested in that kind of thing, a little bit of history. Uh, very, very well written. His style of writing is excellent. It's very easy to read. So I highly recommend those. If you enjoyed Simon Winchester's book, give Ross King's books a try. I think you might uh, might enjoy those as well. And both works are definitely worth checking out in person as well. It's awe-inspiring to behold. And a little pro tip for the Sistine Chapel. Most of the time, because it is such a tourist attraction, it's standing room only, shoulder-to-shoulder, sweaty mess in there. But if you make it to the Vatican first thing in the morning before it opens and are able to get somewhere near the front of the line, and when you, you enter, if you traverse the galleries in reverse and and book it, as my wife and I did when, when we went and visited, and we just blew by all of Raphael's frescoes and right past uh, Rodin's The Thinker, and we were able to make it before anyone else really had made it at all. There was one very small we'll call it an elite tour group because they somehow got some preferential treatment and were able to... They'd been allowed in early. Yeah, exactly. They got in early. Uh, there was no one else in there, but uh, so you could hear the echo of your voice in the room. I was able to lie flat out on the floor and, and take it on, which if you try that in the middle of the day, you are going to get trampled. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You'll get crushed, yes. Yeah, so it was uh, just phenomenal to be able to take Michelangelo's work in without being jostled and, and bumped about. And uh, it really is just breathtaking to to be able to to see it, uh, just the detail that he put into each and every one of those frescoes, and knowing the amount of work that went into each and every one, the 
years of his life that he, he sacrificed to this project uh, truly is incredible. Yeah, unfortunately, when I was there, I, I had to deal with the, the masses of people I was in with a group. And, and so we ended up at the Sistine Chapel at the end of the tour, as you normally do. And so it was just a sea of humanity in there. It was uh, it was ridiculous, the number of people that were in there. Being able to uh, to jump the, the mass of people is also worthwhile. We did that when we were at the Taj Mahal. The trick to that is that you get there before sunrise because they, they open the park at sunrise. And everybody gets into the park and they're, they're the, the famous reflecting pools in front of the Taj Mahal. And everybody stops at the first reflecting pool and starts taking photos from there. And the trick is that you keep going on and there's a break in that reflecting pool and you stop halfway down. And so what happens is everybody, all the other keeners are behind you taking photographs of the Taj Mahal with you in it. And you're taking photographs of the Taj Mahal with nobody in it. So I have some fabulous photos of the Taj Mahal, absolutely nobody in them. And I I got to wander around a lot of the park for about a half hour without anybody in any of my photographs. So if any of these popular destinations, if you can get there very early and often do the thing that people are not doing, so go to the go to the, the, the prime attraction first or whatever, you can often get uh, get away from the groups. And there are a number of galleries around Rome as well that will have lesser known works and well-known works by the likes of, of Michelangelo and da Vinci. And I have to say, I actually enjoyed taking in a number of Michelangelo's rough sketches as much as I did in taking in his, yeah. his finished complete pieces. And a lot of those sketches are things too that uh, I hadn't seen in in any books uh, before. And I have uh, quite a number of, of books from the Ninja Turtles on my shelves. <laughs> yeah, and also if you end up in Florence, there's some great um, great pieces of his. If you go to the Art Academy there, which is where the original David is. Uh, so if you see David out in the square in front of uh, or near the Uffizi in Florence, that's not the original. That's a, a copy that's been made. Uh, the original has been moved indoors to protect it from the elements. Uh, but inside of that gallery as well are the prisoners, and they are a series of sculptures that he was working on, these massive stone blocks that he was working on. And you can see the people are partially exposed from the the stone, but he abandoned them. And so they're, they look like people that are sort of trying to escape from these uh, these stones. And it's fabulous being able to see these these pieces halfway through or not even halfway through the process, you know, sort of partially through the process. And so it's it's nice to be able to see that, you know, that the process of, of sculpting and, and where what it would have looked like partway through. Yeah, which is very revealing and it gives you some insight into the way that Michelangelo's mm. mind worked, too, because I haven't done any serious sculpture. I messed around with some, some soapstone and, and things like that, but I generally rough things out, or I shouldn't say generally. The only times I've sculpted, I, I rough things out and then uh, slowly yeah. dial in the detail. And on these pieces, there literally are just big chunks of rock still there, while other areas are, it looks like a, a nearly finished piece. You can see the, the progression of, of chisel marks and, and his working lines. I've heard a quote. He had said he, shoot, no, I'm, I'm just going to draw a blank on exactly how the quote goes. Do you know the quote I'm referring to? Somebody asked him, how do you, how do you uh, carve a, a figure from stone? And he says, you just remove all the parts that aren't the figure. Exactly. And then those unfinished works are exactly a picture of that. Yeah, you can see his process and you can see the, the, his thinking behind how he's, how he's doing that. 
yeah, there, there's a number of great galleries there. The Uffizi is another one in, in Florence, if you get to, that's just fabulous. Uh, I, I could spend, I could spend weeks just wandering through a handful of places in, in uh, Rome and Florence and not be bored. There are some amazing, amazing works there. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, and as I mentioned, it's also telling when you, when you hear about the, uh, the Medici, because of, uh, the Medici were not were not great people in a lot of ways. They were uh, they were tyrannical in many ways. If you were one of their enemies, you were probably not long for this world. They were pretty ruthless. Uh, but when you look at the amount of money that they spent on art and technology and science, they pretty much single handedly as a family kickstarted the Italian Renaissance. They they were spending many many times the gdp of florence on art and science every year and which is remarkable when you think of a single family a single institution like that being able to do it they were pretty much single-handedly responsible for funding some of these artists and and keeping them going so um some of the stories that come out of both of these books are fascinating hearing about the medici and, and hearing about you know sort of 15th 16th century italian politics So moving from books to uh, movies, we've spoken a lot about documentaries in previous episodes and, and the fact that we do enjoy watching documentaries. I just wanted to touch a little bit on a few documentaries that I've seen recently, one that's one that's come up recently and a few that are related that I've seen over the years that, uh, that I'd recommend. One of the things that I'm interested in as well as the 100,000 other things that I do is uh, letterpress and printing using physical type on paper. And this is a process that's been around for a thousand years. It's, it's movable type press is, uh, comes in with Gutenberg, but we, uh, we know of a physical print matrix of some sort being used in printing for, for a long time. So this isn't, uh, this isn't anything new, but I, I love the idea of physically printing. And, uh, and it's something that uh, Tamara and I are, are looking to explore a little bit more is it using um, using a letterpress to to produce various things, and so there was a, a new documentary that came out this year called "Pressing On: The Letterpress Film." And this is something that we were looking forward to quite a bit. It had been a few years in the making, and there had been a, a couple of of notable people in the letterpress uh, world who had been interviewed for the uh, the documentary. It was something that we were uh, we were kind of looking forward to. It's very promising when it opens up. There's uh, there's a, a great little anecdote of one of the people that's interviewed in the film and, and as a young man how he he gets sort of trapped into learning more about letterpress and how he's you know how it, it fascinates him and how he, he gets involved with it i have to say the overall the documentary was pretty weak this was this is one of those documentaries where it's primarily interviews with people who are collectors and occasional practitioners of letterpress but it does very little to sort of expand upon what's letterpress, how it's being done, uh, the processes that are being involved. Uh, so by the end of it, you know, I, I know a little bit about letterpress just because I've I've done a lot of research in it. And so I know things like, you know, what's happening when you're inking the letterpress and how you're laying out the type and things like that. But if you don't know that already, coming out of this film, you won't have any better understanding of of how letterpress works. Uh, you'll basically have some sort of below average interviews with uh, with people who do letterpress or who collect the machines that are being used for letterpress. Uh, so I was a little bit disappointed with this film. 
which is too bad because it, it had a lot of potential, f- you know, for sort of delivering some interesting information about uh, about letterpress. And it got me thinking about a couple of other printing related documentaries that I've seen over the last couple of years that are worth checking out. So if this is a topic that's of any interest to you, you don't necessarily need to avoid uh, pressing on, but it's certainly not the type of thing that you should watch as a first letterpress documentary because it's really not going to give you any understanding about the basics of it. Two printing films that I do recommend. Uh, the first is Linotype, the film. and This was directed by Doug Wilson. And this talks about the Linotype machine, which was being used in sort of production printing. If you look back at the New York Times or any large newspaper, for instance, they were being typeset on a using a linotype machine and it was a machine that you could type on it had a keyboard on it and it was also a machine that had hot lead in it that would cast type and so you would type a line and it would then go off and it would cast that line of of type into lead and then that lead block of text could then be used in a traditional printing press and you would then be able to print your pages based on that. Uh, so Linotype the Film is a, a really interesting documentary. And unlike the uh, the letterpress film, A Pressing On, this one you'll actually understand the process. You'll, you can see the machines in operation. There are people there who explain what's going on and how these, uh, these are actually um, used. So it's a, it's a great documentary and it is, it's a, a really good example of of how a documentary on a technical subject should actually be directed and, and edited. Uh, so that's that's certainly worthwhile. Uh, so that's Linotype, the film. Uh, so the other one I recommend is Making Faces, Metal Type in the 21st Century by Richard Kegler. This is a documentary that follows a Canadian graphic artist by the name of Jim Rimmer. And it's following him making some original lead type that, uh, so this is going to be handset metal type that can be used in printing. And it was the first time that anybody had actually created a new typeface and released the digital font and the handset metal font at the exact same time. So it was an interesting interesting look at a man who had spent his career producing typefaces professionally. And then sort of in his retirement, he ended up creating a number of unique typefaces and was able to release some of them digitally as well as make physical type that was being used by uh, people in the letterpress industry. So it's a it's a, a relatively short documentary, but it is it is good, and it is a it doesn't show the the entire printing process really. It's not a great uh, great great film for that. I think Linotype is a better uh, documentary for showing off the printing process. But this is a a really good look at sort of how somebody would create this type originally. And it, it goes a little bit farther than something like Helvetica, where Helvetica is talking about the the design and, and how that new typeface was being created, but it was really being created for a digital world. This is this is all about creating physical type that that you would then be able to to set in a in a printing press and use. Definitely worthwhile again making faces and linotype. I would definitely recommend those. In a similar vein uh Something that crossed my radar recently that I found somewhat interesting was uh, the digitization of uh, an older typeface called Wallbomb. And the, the 
digitization was done by uh, Charles Nix and uh, some other typeface designers alongside him. But this was a, a very groundbreaking and popular typeface in its era when it was first made for printing presses. And uh, it, there have been a number of attempts over the years to digitize it, but none quite did it justice and scaled in the same way. So when a, a designer like Jim Rimmer would craft the typeface in the metal, the designer is going to make different affordances depending on how big the the various sizes are. So if he's making a, a very s- small, tightly set version of the, the typeface that they've created, the weight and, and kern of each letter is going to be different at a very small typeset than it's going to be at a much larger typeset. So let's say, uh, to put it in digital terms, a font size of, say, 120 versus a font size of 6. In most digital typefaces or fonts that we have today, you're basically going to have the same glyphs at both ends of the spectrum. So generally you have fonts that are are better for reading on a screen or on paper and and better for small type versus a very large set type. And uh, what these these designers have done with Wilbom is gone in and put in that same level of of care and perhaps even more care looking at, at the end result than the original designer of the typeface would have put in creating all these individual metal blocks for each size that the the type could be set in. And uh, it's an impressive endeavor, and it took them a number of years, but uh, for all intents and purposes, the the end result uh, seems well worth it. And uh, we'll link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah, I love the idea of of typefaces. I, you know, there's a part of me in the back of my brain that that thinks if I ever have the the free time to, uh, to play around with it, I'd love to try making my own metal type and I don't know if I'd ever design my own typeface, but it would be interesting to, I think, to make metal type to uh, to be able to do printing. I, I don't know that I'm ever going to get around to that because there there are other ways of producing print matrices that are, are far more convenient uh, in a modern age than than producing uh, blocks of lead. But uh, it's it's an interesting idea, and I, I've. I've always found this fascinating and, and something like making faces, it, it really gives you some insight into how somebody can can create a new a new typeface and and the things that make it different than another typeface that you're seeing. So uh, I love I love seeing this kind of thing and, and hopefully uh, if other people are are fascinated by graphic design and, and this kind of work, then uh, they'll check this out and, uh, and find it interesting. Now, looking back on a slightly more esoteric period of, of history. What do you think about engine turning a, a watchmaker's cane? Well, I, I guess the first question is, what what exactly would a watchmaker's cane entail? What would it have in there? Well, I'm in, envisaging a, a lovely engine turned Fabergé-esque uh, top to it, where you could screw off the top, which would contain the loop. And then beneath that, a series of, of screwdrivers and, and tweezers in little <laughs> holes. You know, in much the same way that, uh, you know, a flare gun walking stick would would have a flare gun in it or, you know, the way a a magician's table cane would would turn into a a table for a magician to his tricks on, you know? So just in case you need to uh, spontaneously repair a watch at a dinner party, you can can do some work on that? Precisely. 
Yeah, there's some some fabulous canes out there in history, and we've talked a little bit about Fabergé work in the past, and and their most popular item was certainly the cigarette case. Anybody who was anybody had a had a Fabergé cigarette case or carche. There are a number of other little items that we don't really use today in modern society that were very popular amongst people shopping at Fabergé's boutiques, and one of them was canes, uh, canes and parasols. Uh, those were the two that um, that come to mind. Uh, that we just don't use anymore. And there's some really fabulous engine-turned, jeweled, some of them are carved in hard stone, uh, cane handles, uh, some of them are parasol handles, as I said. And uh, yeah, there's some, some beautiful work out there from uh, that, kind of, uh, that kind of era. Uh, these days, there's not a lot of call for sort of decorative canes, but uh, most of them are practical canes for people who need them for medical reasons. Yeah, there's uh, there's certainly some interesting ideas out there for for odd canes from sort of a hundred years ago. And what brings this up is uh, a Rao Antiques, uh, who has a, a wide variety of decorative system and weapons canes available for purchase, anywhere from about a thousand dollars up <laughs> to price available upon request, for all manner of, of different crafts or purposes, everything from a uh, woman of the night's cane to a japanese sake cane to a, a sailor's cane a doctor's cane you name it and someone probably at some point in history has made it yeah it's it's one of those odd little quirks of history that we don't keep around we you know we've just never kept around and and in some cases particularly here in canada many of those canes would be illegal any kind of hidden weapon cane is is certainly highly illegal here in canada so yeah, you would uh, you'd have a difficult time trying to import some of that for sure. Any of these uh, jump out at you as uh, being a particular favorite or, or one you you wouldn't mind waltzing around town with? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that I'd waltz around town with many of them. They're uh, a little bit ostentatious for what I would be doing. No, I, I quite like the sailor's navigation cane, but that's probably because it's somewhat reminiscent of what a, a watchmaker's cane might contain in that it, it has some magnifying gear and then it, it has a, a compass which is reminiscent of a pair of tweezers and then a, a, several other little odds and ends all stuffed in there i do have a very handy pocket knife that is designed for watchmakers the the minotaur from swiss army knives or victor Knox, and uh, that has actually come in handy quite a number of times and uh, something that size would would stash easily the same amount of gear into a the head of a cane but the the Fabergé ones on here really are lovely too. Yeah, so these these cane handles um, are fabulous pieces. I I would love to try to try experimenting with some of these these shapes and these ideas, uh, but of course they're they're not really practical and and they're the, you can tell that these were designed for people who uh, for whom practicality was not you know not high on their list of requirements. Uh, so if you've ever walked around with a cane, having one with a uh, with a hook on it is very handy because then you can you can hook it on the side of a table, for instance, so that you don't have to fumble around and try and hold it or whatever. Whereas a cane like this, it, it's just a straight-handled cane. You can't really put a lot of weight on it, so this is really for decorative purposes. Uh, and also trying to sort of put it down somewhere would be awkward, so I suspect you were probably handing this to a butler or a servant of some kind. Uh, but I love the design ideas. I love some of the shapes of these uh, they do. They do quite look quite lovely. Now, in contrast to these, you mentioned practicality, and let's say uh, someone who a, de- a designer whose work exudes 
practicality and, and who's looked up to by uh, pretty much any industrial designer of our modern day is Dieter Rams. We've mentioned his, his forthcoming documentary by Gary Hustwit that will be coming out this autumn. But I saw an interview recently with Rams and the cane that he had uh, was essentially a perfect circle at the top. And uh, it's not a cane. You know, I hadn't seen uh, anything quite like it before. And there was a Q&A session at the the end of the the talk and or panel discussion, rather. And, and I really had wished that someone had inquired about his cane because I, I was curious to know uh, exactly the reasons uh, he had for choosing that particular cane, or, or perhaps it's a cane that he himself designed. I, I don't know. Uh, but that was uh, interesting to see. And of course, being a uh, Getting on in years, uh, I'm sure it's, it has it for very practical reasons as well. Okay, so this cane is a straight a straight cane with a sort of an oval handle at the top, which is interesting. So that there are a couple of advantages to that. It is it does mean it's something that's easy to hook across a uh, coat hook or something like that. Uh, you can stick it th- probably stick your arm through that quite easily, so you don't have to hold onto the cane while you're fiddling with your billfold or whatever while you're paying for something. Um, yeah, there's some advantages to having a, a, a circular handle like that on a cane. That's a, that's a, a great idea. Very practical. Mm-hmm. And I imagine it's more comfortable too from a, a seated position and then rising up from a seated to standing position. You, you then have two levels to grasp so you can get a slightly better. Well, you can put both hands. Lock, both hands as well. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's a great idea. A great design. And another interesting cane on Rao Antiques is one with a, a watch that's set into its handle. And it's to to wind the watch, you actually spin the, the bezel on the, the top of the cane there. So it's uh, somewhat reminiscent of what we talked about a few weeks back. Um, the clocks that you're you're planning to engine turn, much like the, the clocks that Patek Philippe makes. This is an interesting design and it's uh, I, I like that idea. It's sort of like an automatic, but instead of it relying on a weight to turn and uh, and wind, you're winding it manually. Uh, now, I was thinking about the uh, your clock comments later, and, and after I saw the, the clocks that you were talking about, they are a little bit different than the ones that I'm thinking about making. Mm. Uh, the ones I'm thinking about making are more like a, a picture frame uh, where it's a, a relatively flat piece. Um, it doesn't, it's not a... A cylinder with a dome on top. Okay. Yeah, it's not a cylinder or a cube or something like that. It's uh, it's uh, it's nowhere near that thick. So it's a, a slightly different, slightly different design, and it's uh, so it doesn't lend itself to having a dome or something like that on the top of it. Uh, but I do like those uh, those ones that you posted. I do like the looks of them, uh, and they they certainly offer up some some other design ideas that uh, and design possibilities because you do end up with a lot more surface area to. Uh, experiment with so there there certainly are some interesting things you can do with that so let's fast forward 40 years you need a cane would you engine turn yourself a, a nice handle you know i've thought about that i've the problem is that 40 years from now if i need a cane you can probably get uh, hip and knee surgery and have the knees and hips of your youth back well i'm i i don't want the knees of my youth to be honest i i, I did some horrible things to my knees when i was a, when i was young so I, i'm not sure that i necessarily want my knees from my youth you're right. They're probably going to have better better joint replacement uh, when we're in our 80s than there is currently available. Uh, but I think if I if I needed a cane, the problem at that point is that it's it's something that needs to be practical. And a lot of the the nice engine turning designs don't lead to being a practical cane. Uh, you do need a, a cane with a nice handle that's ergonomic, that's easy to easy to use. Uh, so 
I certainly have thought about making a cane for myself in case I'm I'm ever in need of one. I, I have occasionally needed one over the years, but I think that it would have to be something a little bit more practical than this, uh, something that's um, that's not quite as decorative. Although it might be interesting to do some ornamental turning down the length of the cane instead of some uh, some engine turning. So, you know, maybe choose some nice uh, nice African blackwood or some nice ebony or something like that. Some uh, you know nice dense dense wood, or maybe some. Uh, some boxwood or something, make a nice cane that's got some uh, some interesting ornamental turning down the length of it. Yeah, some of the ornamental turning you, you've shown me from your, your books are just stunning. I had no idea that it was even possible to, to do that sort of thing in, in ivory and wood and that that was mechanized and, and as precisely done as it, mm-hmm. it was and, and so long ago too. Going back to the, the comments earlier about the Medici, uh, some of that work was being sponsored by them early on so if you go through remember it's one of the medici palaces that i was at in in florence they have a number of the coburg ivories which were done uh, early ornamental turning pieces and it's funny because when you you know when most people talk about early any early form of an art uh, most people think of it it's going to be quite crude but these are absolutely fabulous they're far more complex than stuff that people are doing today and better executed than many of the pieces that came after them and they're they're just absolutely fabulous. I, I would have a difficult time trying to recreate those today, even with the large arsenal of tools and modern machines and CNC equipment and things like that. It would be very, very difficult to reproduce those today. Uh, they were clearly being made by somebody who was doing that full time and, and was, was clearly a master of, of ornamental turning. And they, again, they were being made very early on in ornamental turning. So early 17th century, uh, maybe maybe into the 16th century. I don't remember the exact dates on them, but very, very early on in ornamental turning. And again, that was all stuff being funded by the uh, by the Medici. So yeah, some absolutely fabulous work being done with that. And, and that's that's the kind of stuff that, I, it's probably too ornate, you know, that doesn't have any structural integrity. But some of the ornamental turning that's out there could, could look quite good if you, uh, if you did it properly on a cane. I have a vague recollection of seeing those pieces now, but I... I really had no idea what I was looking at at the time, so didn't uh, appreciate them for what they were. I did neither. I I have all these photos of it, and it was from before I was I was uh, getting into ornamental turning at all. I I knew about engine turning, and I didn't understand the relationship between engine turning and ornamental turning. And so I was walking through this palace, and I was seeing all these gorgeous pieces. So if I looked through my camera roll at the time, I, I have dozens and dozens of photos of these spectacular pieces i had no idea that how they were made uh i just knew that they were absolutely fabulous and i had no idea how how anybody had made them and it's funny because even in the museum they're really presented without any commentary any description about what it is you know they're basically shown as decorative items made out of ivory there's really nothing more to them more to the descriptions than that there's nothing about how they were made or or the engines that they were being made with or anything like that Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand. <laughs>